Like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk. Welcome to a Thanksgiving week edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On this holiday edition, we will talk jazz music with. Bleacher Reports, Natalie Weiner. It's a really fun discussion. We break down her longtime passion for jazz and even, my friends, a little bit of my experience in high school jazz band. Joe Reed, give us a taste of Brad on the solo trumpet. Okay, by the way, Adam, um, I every time I kick it to Joe Reed to play music, it's always somewhat yeah. frustrating because I'm the one editing in the music as Joe Reed <laughs> remains <Yeah>. missing in action. <laughs> right. How how long are we gonna pretend he's alive? <laughs> well, he does he does do some stuff for us, but Joe Reed is in demand. Anyway, I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. We also this week are gonna break down in honor of Thanksgiving, our biggest turkeys of the year, non-sports edition. Stay tuned for that. You know, right now, though, we're going to introduce my co-host from the very first Just Not Sports almost 100 episodes ago. He is a respected and feared PR representative of some of the biggest organizations, teams, and brands in sports. He is Adam Willard. Adam, Let's talk, what's the one dish you feel confident making for a Thanksgiving meal? Like, truly, a, truly, it's it's your hallmark of the meal. There's a lot, but I would say, well, can I give you, I'll give you a side, so uh, collard greens, and then uh, I make a, basically a foolproof dessert, which is a frozen peanut butter Oreo pie. Those would be my two. Okay. <laughs> Last year, though, my girlfriend uh, came to Chicago for Thanksgiving. She's French, so she doesn't necessarily celebrate Thanksgiving, but we celebrated together last year. <laughs> we made our entire meal together, and I have to say it was the best Thanksgiving meal I've had yet. Adam, I love that you say she doesn't necessarily celebrate Thanksgiving. Like, you know, I don't necessarily celebrate Bastille Day because I'm not French. Right. I mean, or she's, I don't celebrate it. <laughs> she's she's been in the U.S. long enough where it's become part of her annual tradition, but um, is not as important to her as this me. Uh, I'm not a Thanksgiving meal. No, nothing that I could put out there would probably be in my wheelhouse. Um, what do you what's your specialty in general? 
I, okay, I will say this. For an appetizer, I do a, I do a pretty good bacon-wrapped date. Okay. I, I'll, let, I, I'll let you come over and yeah. spring those. And I've yeah. done everything from, you know, like just, uh, you know, soft cheese in the middle uh, to, uh, you know, a little, mix it up with some pepper jack, which no one liked, but I loved. I like uh, pepper jack. I don't yeah. know. I, I have not thought to put it in that kind of appetizer, but I'm not you. Yeah, probably because really? my palate is about as bad as you can get. <laughs> okay. uh, this is not a lie. This is not a lie. When Kelly met me, she was like, what kinds of meals do you cook yourself? And I showed her one that was, I would open up a can of corn and then open up a can of tuna. Yeah. I would mix that up and put in cheese and microwave it and then put it all in a tortilla and eat it like a taco. So you're saying you were 24 and broke. Like, yeah. you're a 24-year-old broke dude. That's I was what, a 24-year-old yeah. newspaper reporter. Yep, that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. That's what that's what all dudes eat. If I hadn't worked for the Green, Green Bay Packers and had two meals per day provided by them, I'm not sure what I would have consumed. I'm surprised I lived through the 2000s, but that's a different story. Uh, okay, our other, our other co-hosts, not here tonight. Gareth Hughes traveling across country. Joe Reed somewhere, somehow. I mean, Joe Reed at this point has reached Gone Girl level. I think Fincher is recording his life for a potential sequel, but we will hopefully get him back on the pod soon. All right. Enough is enough. Wide open. Let's take the open of the show and make it wide open. Adam, it's Thanksgiving. I thought, let's, let's talk about the turkeys of the year. Okay. The, the 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 people in the sports world who did the the dumbest of the dumb stuff off the field, off the court, away from the game that we could say were the biggest non-sports turkeys of the year. And I'm going to start, and I'm going to start with a relatively hot take. Okay. Your favorite athlete of all time, Kevin Durant. F- oh god. Yeah, continue. Kevin Durant was caught, was mired, if you will, in a scandal of sorts, a a 2017 scandal where he apparently was tweeting on his account and then started commenting from his account, uh, saying things like uh, to, 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 to naysayers, saying things like KD had to leave. His coach was crap. That team was crap. Uh, he had to go, but not realizing he was still kind of dialed into his own. Uh, it was either Twitter or Instagram. I forget. I think it was Twitter. I think it was Twitter. As yeah, well. he's dialed into well, his own account. We're guys in our thirties. Who knows the difference? Exactly. And because this is 2017, this had to be a big deal. People had to freak out. It became like a huge talking point in the blogosphere first, and then all over. You know, the first takes of the world. It was an indictment on KD's maturity and whether he's handling success. I just want to point out, this is the guy who is a multimillionaire, self-made millionaire who won the uh, NBA finals MVP last year. But I digress. This was the biggest thing in his life for a couple weeks. Adam, but what wait, are you saying? Are you defending him in that statement? A, a little, okay. I'm just saying dude on Twitter getting two weeks of full blast from everyone. Like, did we forget that he just owned LeBron in a finals? Like, I mean, come on. It's relative, right? It's a relatively minor slip up. But as Adam and I know, as respected PR people, 
<laughs> literally <laughs> nationally honored PR representatives, Adam, Adam Millard and myself. Uh-huh. We know that the, the fallout is always uh, way worse than the act. Yes. So here's my deal with Durant. And here's what makes him the biggest turkey of the year. Okay. If I had been advising him, all this would have gone away within a matter of hours. I was I, th- I thought that's this is where you're going, but continue. What would what's your recommendation? What he did was kind of half-ass delete the account or he he kind of like deleted the tweets. He then didn't really address it, then he did address it and said he screwed up. And the first thought I had was, dude, you need a fall guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What he needed to do, here's the Brad Burke prescription to this alleged problem. KD, you say I have a social media intern who logs into my account and posts generic paid placements. Now, what you do is you undercut the authenticity of these paid placements, and you might lose a few uh, here and there, or you might get a little uh, hand slap from the branded partners that rely on that to uh-huh. spread the message. But that's a relatively short-term issue. And you've got bank enough to not have to worry about it. Then you say, my social media manager who has access to my account logged in to uh, check the metrics or po- post something, saw some inflammatory comments about myself, and started commenting back in his own voice, not realizing he was with my account. He panicked. He deleted those tweets. He didn't tell me about it at first. He told my representatives, by the time it got to me, it was already too late. I'm apologizing right now. He, I've changed my password. He's out for a couple weeks. Ha ha ha. Everyone's laughing about it. I'm still KD, NBA Finals MVP, over and done. Adam, did I just solve this problem in a matter of two hours? My take on Kevin Durant being a turkey had to do with the Nike commercial more so than his tweets. You know which one I'm talking about, right? I, refresh my memory. So this is the one that the commercial that Nike put out immediately following the Golden State Warriors. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. With all the naysayers. Yeah. Yeah. Where he chose to go after the media who had criticized him rather than to congratulate his teammates or anyone who had helped him along the way. This is a guy who once said in his MVP speech that his mom was the real MVP, but following the team victory. Um, went about making it about himself and criticizing anyone who ever had a disparaging remark about him, which, to be honest, there weren't a whole lot of Kevin Durant haters until he left Oklahoma City to go to Golden State. Yeah, I mean, he had to assume that when I leave my small market team, I'm going to get some backlash. (laughs) Like, come on, KD. I still think, though, at the end of the day, man, when it's social media and there's a bad post, you either say, I got hacked, or you say, my social media manager did it. I have no idea what he was thinking. It honestly made me question the team around him. Guys, as 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 Adam and I, being the team around guys, <laughs> get your shit together, okay? Because now KD has the worst, uh, the worst problem of, of, of all, which is being a just not sportist turkey of the year. Uh, and I would have taken. I would have gladly, as part of his team, I would have gladly take a large payout to be that fall guy. Oh my! Oh my! Publicly. I'll do it right now. I'll still do it. Right. I'll write a book. I'll write a Bill O'Reilly killing Kevin Durant's uh, Twitter account. I'll, I'll ghost write it for Bill, and I'll do it for Kevin. Like it's great. Just pay pay me out. Right. 
All right, real quick, uh, Adam, I'm going to punt to you in a second. I want to talk about, I want to throw out a couple more, uh, or one, one more real quick, because I, I have a couple. Sure. Orenthal, James Simpson. I just have, I want to talk directly to Orenthal. I know he's a listener. Oh, where's um, this go? Hey, let me, in, in the spirit of what we were just talking about, OJ, uh, what Brad is about to say, I am not involved with. Go ahead, Brad. <laughs> yeah, I'm representing white America when I, when I say this. Hey, OJ. America is desperate to put you back in jail, buddy. <laughs> All right. What are you doing? <laughs> why are you why are you getting kicked out of clubs in Vegas? Why are you in Vegas at all? You need to go to like Idaho, buddy. Or how about this? Canada. Go be a fan of the Winnipeg Jets. Be their most famous fan. Maybe they don't have Google. Maybe the millennials don't know what you did. Do not be overserved at a Las Vegas nightclub and getting into a verbal altercation where police might show up because guess what, buddy, those cops, they've seen you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's it, man. That's, I mean, come on, OJ, how many chances can you get? How many chances can you get? Until he dies, which is right around the corner. You know what OJ is, Adam? I don't know if I wish Gareth was here because he would know this too, but OJ is the Knicks in that game against Jordan where like Charles Smith and, and Oakley kept missing those bunnies. <laughs> How many shots from two feet away can you get, OJ? OJ, you've got a pension. You were in Florida. Do what every other old retired person does in Florida. Just be quiet. Just disappear, man. Just disappear. All right, that's my other uh, my other turkey right there. Okay, Adam, keep us keep us rolling. Who who's on your turkeys of the year list? Well, before I got on air, I previewed this, but I want to clarify. So it goes without saying, or for those of you of who have heard the podcast, that I don't like Levar Ball much, and we've seen a lot of turkeys along the years, but this is a guy with. Uh, to me, arguably no true talent except exploiting the skills of his three sons. And in the past year, he has made Lonzo Ball, his his eldest son, the most hated, hated player in the league because of what he says about his son. So the most the guy with the biggest target on his back is his son, uh, Lonzo Ball. His middle son, Leangelo, just got arrested in China for shoplifting. Uh, LeVar brushed that off and then, of course, uh, had a heated exchange with uh, our president. And his youngest son, LaMelo, he is not giving him a choice about whether he wants to play college basketball or not because having his own signature shoe, LeVar feels, is far more important for his son. So this is a guy to me that I, I know we've been trying to keep the show light, but really, truly, this guy is a toxic person. And Social media aside, I think who I want to make the turkey of the year is any media who have given this guy a platform to continually spread his venom. And I don't mean the hosts. Everyone has a boss. You got to do what you got to do. But the producers who think that the ratings are more important um, than the message that this guy is sending to a, a young, impressionable audience. So there's polls that have said that LeVar has a lot of influence with these kids and, and kids are actually fans of it. I don't understand it. Uh, I don't understand NBA 2K putting him in the game. I understand he's a bit of a pop culture phenomenon, but 
don't we think that this guy is done and said enough? I mean, between the damage he's done to his kids and his misogynist comments, it's enough already. I wish in 2018 people would just stop booking this guy. I 100% agree. Although I did tweet from the Just Not Sports handle tonight that tomorrow, uh, LeVar and Trump should just host first take and just knock this out. Like, give us Thanksgiving off of this bullshit. Like, just get it done on Tuesday. The whole, but it'll be burnt by by Wednesday night. Everyone's gonna be like, "There's nothing left to say." <laughs> That's right. Honestly, honestly, if those two guys would just like go host a show uh, that we could kind of compartmentalize on one part of of media, I would, yeah. I would, I would like Patreon that show like ninety percent of my salary. <laughs> <laughs> I'll eat tuna and corn in a bowl. I've already, I've already established. I can, well, I can su- subsist on the bottom of the food chain if it meant that no Lavar Ball news is coming into my life. And Adam, this was the most predictable media politics feud of all time. All as time. soon as I found out that Trump intervened, I was like, Trump's going to take all the credit. And look, if Donald Trump got Americans home from a a, a misunderstanding that could have led to jail time for a relatively minor offense for minors uh, or, or young adults. All, hey, thank you. Like more power to you. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that like can't see the value of the president doing his job, but like the instant bombast fits in with his overall kind of culture of, of, uh, of narcissism that he's, he's established on purpose. And then you knew that was going to repel the, the, crazy end of the LeVar Ball magnet instantly and that we would end up in this place where once again two factions of America have to hate each other because two completely aloof people decided they want to get a Twitter feud I'm just I just can't deal with it right now yeah but I mean you are right good for Donald Trump for helping out some rich black people <laughs> hey, I also believe he he may have pardoned OJ. <laughs> we we don't know that for sure, but like oh. that, that may have happened. All right, moving on. I got a couple more. This one goes out to fake Big Shack. <laughs> oh wow! We talked okay. about this guy recently, rapper. I don't even remember his name. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna Big mention Shaq. it. Uh huh. And he says, oh, no, but his real name because his name is not Big Shack. Oh, right. He's a comedian, right? I read a little bit more about this later. Oh, he's an, he's a, wait, this was, he's a comedian. Please indulge, just, indulge I, me, man. No, that's all. That's literally all I know. Uh, you like, like Gareth Hughes, I do partial research for this show. Okay. Well, no, no, like Gareth, you don't. Sorry, do, Gareth. That's not fair. You're no. not here to defend yourself. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, Gareth does no research for the show. Adam, you are <laughs> like, you are the Stephen Hawking of just not sports compared to <laughs> Gareth. So, this guy said his name was Big Shaq. The only thing I have to say about Big Shaq was jokes on you because not only did it remind the world who had never heard of you that you're not your own name, it gave us an all-time Shaq diss track. Joe Reed, a.k.a. me, let's hear that now. There's a lot of people that are named after me. Shaquille, Shaq. But keep in mind... It's only one big shack. It is I, the originator, the dominator, the creator. Don't you ever call your name Big Shack. Last man who called himself Superman still ain't got no rings. Roadman Shack. 
Find me scraping the black heart. I got a leak in the backyard. Adam, Adam, that's at least a top 13 Shaq song. That is a, um, yeah, well, it's hard. It's because it's modern era Shaq, but yeah, I'll go, I'll go top 13. Sure. What's your, do you have an all time favorite Shaq song still? Uh, no. I, I, if I was going to guess, <laughs> no. I would say it's, it, you would say biological didn't bother. Yeah, I think that probably is. It's the most memorable Shaq song to me. Yeah. The most personal. Yeah. Now I got to go. Uh, I know I got skills, <laughs> which for a hundred straight episodes, we've paid homage to on this show. Uh, okay. So big Shaq, you are clearly not the big Shaq. Stop it. And then my final one, man, my final Turkey of the year. LeBron James. Wow. Why? I'm going right to the King's throne, man. I'm going to throw it down. Here we go. Where is the Space Jam script? Okay, something. Leak something. I I reside in a world where every single trailer for The Last Jedi gets a fleet of 10-minute breakdowns of every (laughs) individual still, and I don't have anything resembling plot rumors for the Space Jam movie. If LeBron... He's the most powerful man in entertainment. I, I, yeah, and and what I what I can't get over is that all these rumors that tie him to L.A. talk about him being a media mogul and uh, and oh he's moving to L.A. because maybe he he's got the Space Jam thing lined up and Jeremy Lin's going to be in it. Jimmy Lin is out on IR the rest of the year. He can sit in a chair with green screen legs. And figure out how to be in the fucking Space Jam movie. And LeBron, seriously, like, I will write this movie for you. I I will write this movie. Email me back and read my scripts. And what you'll find is uh, they, they will get better if I could just... If I could just get more time to write them not on the train. Okay? So I just want to say... We need to be moving a lot further on this Space Jam 2 than we are. I think this L.A. thing is a total red herring. I don't buy it. Uh, I mean, he may play in L.A., but it's not because they're making the Space Jam movie. If they want to make the Space Jam movie, they could make the Space Jam movie. Rob Zombie made multiple Halloween movies that no one asked for. <laughs> and he, then he made multiple movies after that off Kickstarter money. You know, Adam, Kevin, I, Adam, I'm like one minute away from going into a full Dwight Howard rant here. And I, I just mean, can't. I can't. Kevin Durant got thunderstruck done and in the at the height of his career. Surely LeBron, a small movie, small budget movie like Space Jam should not be a problem. I mean, I'm about to hand this script that I wrote. It's like 75% done. I'm about to hand it to Iverson <laughs> and Starberry, man. We know they can do it. Oh, yeah. They... This is the uh, next Starsky and Hutch. Can't wait. Yeah. The Iverson, uh, the Starbury movie it, <laughs> with Iverson. Go back and listen to that episode from a few weeks ago. An amazing achievement. Okay. Those or are our- really, let's really fuck things up and have Starbury and Iverson uh, star in a remake of Dukes of Hazard. I am in. <laughs> All right. Those are our turkeys of the year. Right now, we're going to go to an interview I did with Bleacher Report writer 
uh, Natalie Weiner. She is a uh, longtime uh, kind of uh, purveyor of pop culture. Uh, she's written about jazz for a number of uh, publications, uh, most recently Billboard. Uh, she blends her knowledge of sports with uh, a keen interest in um, in the overall uh, broader culture. And uh, in fact, uh, recently we did a, a breakdown of Victor Oladipo's uh, R&B stylings, which had almost directly come from my conversation with Natalie uh, because she had recently profiled him. So She's a big lover of jazz. We talked about, uh, you know, favorite artists, uh, where to get started if you're not a, a fan of jazz or maybe, uh, you know, are a little bit intimidated for where do I start. Uh, it's a fun conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And after that, as always, Adam and I will come back and give you some distractions. Stick around. I, I gotta start here. Your Twitter avatar, your name this week says Jazz Detective. Please tell me someone gave you that nickname because it's one of my favorites of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It used to be like my regular display name, but then I felt like I needed to look professional, so I just made it my <laughs> name. Um, but nobody gave it to me. I just I don't even remember what I was reading at this point. I was thinking last night I need to go back and Google and try and find it. But I was reading some article and some guy like characterized himself as a jazz detective. It was some I don't even know what it was, but I was like, that's the best <laughs> thing I've ever heard. And when I worked at Billboard, um, we didn't get. I mean, most people would send things either to me or my colleagues or whatever, you know, with our names. But I did get one envelope. And it just said jazz department and the male people knew like I was the only person who was going to care, you know? <laughs> so I was Billboard's jazz department, at least for that envelope. That is, that is an amazing distinction too. Okay. So you, you also, you played um, jazz in high school. What instrument did you play? I played bass. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah. That- yeah. I started in middle school with electric bass, got to high school. I went to an all girls school, so there were no other bass players. So they were like, will you learn upright and be in jazz band and orchestra? And I was like, okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I was trumpet. um, And I loved playing jazz. I loved playing in jazz band. I mean, how, how would you describe, I guess for, for our listeners, how would you describe the appreciation you get actually playing the music as opposed to just listening to the music, especially in the formative years, because Mm -hmm. that's where you start to crystallize your fandom, your musical tastes. And was, was playing jazz, you know, a a really great sort of entree into that world in a way that may not have existed if you had just been listening or am I overanalyzing that? No, 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 for sure. I mean, I think kind of conventional wisdom says that jazz and a few other genres fit into the category of like musicians music, quote unquote, you know, it's like when you spend a lot of time learning to play an instrument, like you sort of gravitate sometimes towards music. That's a little more ambitious that kind of uses uh, instruments and ideas in a way that require, like, like you're saying, you're, enjoyment of it is helped if you have some understanding of how it's created. Um, I don't think it's like a prerequisite by any means to enjoying jazz, but definitely a lot of people on the scene and who are big fans did play an instrument at some point in their lives. And for me, you know, that's definitely, that was my entry point, you know, like I was in jazz band and I was like, okay, I'll learn about this. You know, I had basically like no frame of reference and, you know, I just kind of, started playing it and started listening and like 
learning more and just kind of fell in love with it. And Seattle actually weirdly has kind of a um, happening jazz scene, which you wouldn't expect, but they have all of these really great high school jazz bands, which I was not a part of, but the public school system um, has these like really great bands that like win national competitions and all this stuff. And so just even being in the same city as all of these other young people who are really into the music, you know, that helped too, I think. My ultimate barometer question is how good of an improviser are you? But playing the bass, how much improvisation is actually even required and or encouraged? I mean, I've seen it happen (laughs) with an upright bass, but was that really part of your experience in the same way? Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of, at least when you're in school and I never really played jazz seriously outside of like a school setting in high school and college. But, you know, you go around in, a, in the circle, basically, and everybody in the band improvises, including the bass player. Um, I would never say that I was like a particularly strong improviser. I just didn't practice enough, quite frankly, to like <laughs> have the chops to ever be all that great. But um, for me, what I really loved about playing music and what I miss about playing it, because I'm not really playing it right now, um, is just kind of like the sense of community, you know, like mm-hmm. there's something different about coming together with people to play music and jazz in particular, cause it's, you know, you have this spontaneity that's sort of built into it. Um, but yeah, improv, like I was not a great soloist by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I could hang, there was like a period yeah. of time when I was like, okay. And I could, you know, do it, but. But yeah, <laughs> it was a bit of a blind spot for me. I, I could, I could, um, I could play well, uh, but I could never improv like you know. So you, the kids in the in the band that would just—it's it, like they were speaking a different language, you know, or like a golfer mm-hmm. who the difference between a guy who's just aiming at the green from two hundred yards away and a guy who's aiming at the pin. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't see the green. I can't see the hole like that, man. So, <laughs> but okay, so you talked about the Seattle scene, but then you went to college in New York, I believe, correct? At Columbia. Mm-hmm. So what was the yep. what was the scene there like, and and how did you sort of transition into, um, you know, college and adulthood, and and stay close to it? Uh, I mean, basically, by the time I was headed off to college, I knew I wanted to go to school in New York, um, so I applied to Columbia. My college counselor told me I wouldn't get in, which was <laughs> rude, and she told me to apply to Barnard, and I was like, no, thank you, um, but I did get in, thankfully, and I wanted to be a music teacher um, mm. or work in a music nonprofit. Like That was where I was at at that point with my career aspirations, um, so I thought I was going to go to Columbia and double major in like music and psychology. Cause like I didn't, I had briefly thought about going the conservatory route, but then just decided that wasn't totally for me. But in New York, you obviously have a lot of conservatories. So I thought maybe if that, maybe if something changed and I really like dug into it and wanted to go to a conservatory, that option would be there. But, um, but yeah, so I wanted to be a music teacher. So obviously when I got to school, I, was in jazz band and taking music classes and doing all of that stuff. Um, and then just kind of over the course of my time there, I discovered American studies, which is what I wound up double majoring in music in, which is just kind of like a multidisciplinary approach to American history and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sort of used that as a way to get into music stuff more, but more from like a historical and cultural angle. Um, and that, sort of late in my college career, I was like, oh, right. People write about this for a living, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) it had never occurred to me to be a writer, you know, before, like 
I don't know. I came to it really late for reasons I don't totally understand. But anyway, I was like, oh, yeah, I could write about music and that could be my job. That would be cool. Um, I took a class called American Cultural Criticism. That was great. And that really I was like, oh, right. This is a thing. Um, So, yeah. So then I, you know, but I was playing bass the whole time um, and going to shows and, you know, just doing all that stuff. I mean, like it was just a really big part of my New York experience, like in classical music too. I volunteered at Lincoln Center um, for most of the time I was in school. I actually bartended at a place in the West Village that had live music, sometimes jazz, sometimes more like singer songwriter places. So, like going to see live music and playing music and talking about music, like that was my whole college thing. Like that where was, was like, the, that was what I did. Where was your where were your go to best places to go see and experience jazz in New York? Oof, it's a tough question because um, there's actually a lot of options. Um, I mean, what I say for tourists usually, I mean, the Vanguard is like basically the oldest continuously running jazz club in New York. You know, it's in the same place as it was in the 50s. And so it's the same place all of these seminal live recordings were made and all these amazing people have played. Um, so I feel like the Vanguard is like the first one I'd check off my list. But Smalls is kind of like the place where musicians hang out. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of it's like almost silly, like that it's that way because it's just a basement, you know. But <laughs> it's been the same thing for so long, you know, that it's just like whenever there are musicians in town on tour and they like play their show, and then afterwards they're like, "What are we gonna do?" Oh, I guess we'll go to Smalls. Like that's usually the thing. So you go there, and if you go for the late night jam session which is like 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. roughly, like Roy Hargrove, like he has become like a fixture there. Like he like hangs out there Um, and just all kinds of other people roll through. And it's just, I don't know. It's not like anywhere else in the world. Basically, you have like jazz musicians that are very, very, very high caliber most nights just hanging out there and chatting and doing stuff. Uh, You know, it's interesting when we talk about the contemporary jazz world and the scene, uh, I, I run into a lot of people who really think of jazz as a relic. It's a it's something that that they know is an important part of American culture, but they don't see it. They don't experience it. And they really they don't even if they even if they're running into it in their day to day lives, they're just sort of. Uh, you know, compartmentalizing it. You know, they might run into an artist who's, mm-hmm. you know, collaborating with someone they know or whatever, and they don't really think about, you know, oh, that's jazz. So how would you define or describe the the contemporary jazz world? Like, wh- what's your sort of state of jazz as you see it? Mm-hmm. Um, and how would you kind of tee that up to people who may think of this as a long lost art and not they're not seeing how the how the music is actually persisting today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an understandable misconception just because, you know, there's a lot of really strong iconography and, you know, sounds that we associate with quote unquote jazz, which is a term that a lot of musicians don't even like to use at this point. Um, But like, you know, a guy with a fedora and a saxophone and he's like (laughs) bopping along or whatever, you know, like the cliches are very strong. So I understand why. you know, and that was part of the controversy, like why La La Land caused so much controversy in the jazz world, you know, like, because <laughs> it yeah. sort of played into a lot of those cliches. I personally wrote about how I didn't find it quite so offensive as many of my colleagues and frankly, as offensive as I expected to find it. Um, but, but yeah, anyway, 
cliches are real, but the fact is that jazz today is like, it's so diverse. And I think that's one of the reasons that people don't understand it because there's just so much different stuff going on, you know? Um, I mean, there's like the people who are kind of collaborating with pop musicians, you know, like Kamasi Washington or Thundercat, who functionally is a jazz musician making pop music um, because he's just, that's the way he operates. Um, Or Robert Glasper, who, you know, collaborates with a lot of pop musicians as well. So there's that branch of things. There's people who make like really edgy avant-garde stuff that like doesn't even have a beat or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. it's still put in this jazz category there's like all the old legends who are still performing there's kind of the people who i guess sort of mainstream contemporary jazz like chris potter and i don't even know jason moran vijay Iyer. like those are sort of i guess i'm just kind of like spitballing like the most mainstream sort of like if you talk to jazz people like what is good jazz today they're gonna say like (laughs) jason moran you know he he just got a job running um what's his I think it's like something at the Kennedy Center connected to jazz. So he's like deep in the institutions like Winston Winton Marsalis. Anyway, so there's just there's so many different branches, you know, that you just to wrap it up in one thing is incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. Um and the different sounds are so broad. You know, that's why I like I try to coach people when they're like, I want to go see some jazz, you know, like they just, cause that's what people think. They're like, jazz is one thing and I would like to witness it. <laughs> and it's like, well, you have to consider your approach, you know? <laughs> and like, I try to be very specific with where I tell people to go and what I tell people to hear, you know, because some of it is more approachable and more intuitive than others. Um, but that's the beauty of it, you know, that there's all this different stuff that people have kind of, tied together or that brings people together. And it's about this idea of improvisation and sort of live music and I don't know, innovation. And I don't know, there, it's like defining jazz is the million dollar question, but those are sort of the principles that bring people together under the label, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Um, but yeah, so, so not to, that's not really a definition, but that's, I guess, why it's so hard to define. Yeah. And what are your go-tos? Like what I guess as someone who's um you know very knowledgeable like do you have and I know that's kind of a weird question just to be like oh yeah give me your give me I I'm not trying to avoid the cliche like who are your favorite artists or whatever but like mm-hmm. that's kind of where I'm going. <laughs> so I apologize. No, no. But I guess what are what are your I guess what are your go-tos and and is there a specific branch um or sort of subgenre within just that umbrella of jazz that you find yourself favoring more than others? Um, I mean, as far as it's kind of two different questions, I feel like for live and recorded jazz, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't listen to a lot of contemporary jazz records outside of, you know, when there's like a really big one to check out. But I just feel like for me, at least like the music comes through so much better in person. um, And the way that digital compression like you get so used to hearing that like analog crunch of the old recordings that hearing digitally compressed stuff today it's just it's not it's just not quite the same (laughs) and like since I live in New York and I have the option to go see a lot of it person like I usually just do that and then when I'm listening to stuff at home I really sort of tend towards the classics a lot of the time like Cannonball Adderley is just like 
one of the most underrated people ever in my humble opinion. And he kind of got put in this weird corner because he was actually pretty commercially successful at the time he was making music, which in the jazz world is like not a point of pride, you know, like that means you're a sellout. Um, And that's kind of, it's funny that it's still effectively that way. Like, and it was then too, you know, 50 to 60 years ago. Um, It's just kind of this goofy prejudice that people have. But anyway, he's amazing. I love Sonny Rollins. Um, There was just recently an anniversary of one of his recordings that is one of my favorites, A Night at the Village Vanguard, which obviously I already mentioned. And it's just, it's like a perfect album. And I love live jazz records. That's like my favorite. I would rather listen to a live, any live record than any studio record. A hundred percent, even like kind of blue or something. It's just, it's way better. <laughs> I was going to say, is that just because the energy of the performance? Is it because it, it, it just feels less um, confined? Like what, what do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's just something about um, the dynamic. I just, Playing without, I mean, the whole point of jazz is to play without limits, right? Like, that's the idea. And so you're just inherently going to be more spontaneous on stage, even if you know you're being recorded, which, of course, they all did. But it's just, and, like, hearing the audience noise, like, I kind of love it. You know, like, if you listen to Cannonball Adderley's Mercy, Mercy, Mercy record, which is, you know, a classic, it's like the way people are reacting to what they're playing is so amazing. Like people are whooping <laughs> and hollering and like, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And I don't know, even hearing like kind of the movement of dishes in the background or something. I don't know. It's so transporting, you know, like you feel mm-hmm. like you're there in the club and that's the, that's the dream, right? Absolutely. I mean, is there, and this might sound like a strange question, but like, is there an album or a particular, um, I hate, I don't really say song cause I just feel like that's, it's such a straight, it, it, it's hard to just sort of like, I think pinpoint like, like, Oh, this is my favorite song. Cause a lot of times it might be 20 minutes or they might, you know, it might just be right. so, you know, so odd or like you said, it's so different, um, you know, uh, uh, recording to recording. But I guess I wonder like, is there a, a particular album or performance that you find the most meaningful? Meaning like you have an emotional connection to that either autobiographical, a certain time of your life, or it just strikes you in a certain way that you kind of keep coming back to it during key moments. Like what would you think is the most meaningful, um, uh, music within jazz for you? Mm, That's such a tough question. I know after I answer it, I'll think of like five other things, (laughs) um, that I should have said, but I mean, the one that comes to mind off the top of my head is, um, Cannibal Adderley's recording of Autumn Leaves with Miles Davis. Um, one of the few records that Miles Davis did is Sideman.
And it's just, I mean, it's a perfect recording. Like, just bottom line, like, it's flawless um, and beautiful. But I also, I had it um, on a playlist where <laughs> where I worked when I was bartending. And it was, like, this little cafe in the West Village. So, like, playing jazz was very on the, like, it was on brand for the place. So I had this whole jazz playlist that I played every night. And I got a lot of compliments on it. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> but that song would always, like, I had it towards the end. Because you can't just make a playlist and, like, put it on shuffle. There, It's all about, like, keeping the energy, you know, whatever. Controlling the energy. And that song is kind of like a slow-ish late-night song. So I always, it was at the end. And so it would always come on, like, when the bar was, like, almost empty. And there might be, like, three people there. And it was just, like, totally the perfect scene you know and it felt like so new york you know like the new york that i imagine that i exist in but no longer exists you know <laughs> like new york of a uh, when everybody wore suits and you could go hear miles davis and sonny rollins in the same night you know like, like 1959 yeah. to 1962 new york yeah exactly and it's like i mean i know Nobody, I don't know how many people listen to this, but nobody needs to come at me and tell me why that actually was bad because I'm aware of racism, sexism, yeah. and all the terrible things that, that were made like then practically very bad. But just allow me to romanticize it. And that song helps me yeah. <laughs> do it. And I also <laughs> just love it. So, um, I, I want to get into you wrote an, a really great article. Um, I believe it was in the Jazz Times about um, some of the challenges that you face as a woman and the perception that, you know, you don't really know the music or the condescension you might get. I, I want to mm -hmm. just re read a, a line from it that I thought was was really great, which is women are underrepresented in jazz, not because they're incompetent or uninterested, but because they still have to fight for acceptance, legitimacy and agency. I, I thought that was really well said and, and it, it was very illuminating in terms of just hearing your perspective. So would you mind for our listeners kind of outlining what was the impetus for writing this piece and, and what are some of the challenges that you've run into um, with these types of, of attitudes from men who are, who are, you know, within the jazz community? Sure. Um, I mean, basically the reason I was able to write it, the reason that I landed the pitch was because Robert Glasper, who's basically among the biggest names in contemporary jazz, you know, I'm sure a few people listening have probably heard his name. He's won Grammys and all that good stuff. But anyway, he gave an interview in which he just said some like really deeply regrettable things about like that women don't enjoy solos. And like, he talked about kind of how he wanted to like, how he met fine European chicks. And I quote who like, didn't look like they would understand jazz or like it, but they did. And that was just so surprising to him. Um, but anyway, it was just kind of like prompted by that and talking about sexism in the jazz world. And I mean, it's just, it's a very interesting microcosm of sexism at large, because obviously nothing, it's not distinctly different from any other part of the world. And actually this week there have been a few well, not this, there's been one specific story that follows another one from like six months ago about uh, sexual harassment in jazz conservatories and assault sort of in line with this whole Harvey Weinstein thing. And now it's like Berkeley and the new school have both had sort of allegations of this kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's 
obviously I have experienced a lot of just people are always just surprised that I listen to jazz and while, you know, whatever, nothing that serious, thankfully, but it's, it's all part of the same issue, right? Right. You know, sort of underestimating women and thinking of them as only, you know, valuable or worthwhile for one specific thing. And jazz, because it imagines itself to be a meritocracy, you know, like the whole point is that like, if you're really good, you're going to play, you know, like the best soloists are the most famous people. Like it's all, there's no, there's not supposed to be any sort of room for somebody to get really big just because they're, you know, they look good or they have good marketing or whatever, you know, that's what's supposed to separate it from pop music is that the best music wins. Um, and of course that's not true because it's just <laughs> not possible. Um, but that myth means that jazz musicians believe the reason there are not that many women in the music is because they just aren't good enough, you know, <laughs> like, right. so they, they imagine it to be a level playing field and it's just not because like you just have to, you know, and the same thing happens in sports, even though I know we're not talking about sports, but it's just sort of the thing about like being a woman who is interested and passionate about anything really like any kind of topic people are always like what you care about that you care about things besides like you know makeup i don't know it's just such a strange um the shock and awe and i don't know the understanding of that particularly within pursuits that are perceived as quote-unquote intellectual like jazz or like football analytics or whatever like that women would never want to do that or would not. I think people disguise their biases by saying, well, like, why would a woman want to be interested in that? It's like, well, why would a man want to be interested right. in it? You know, right. it's just like, it's because it's cool and fun, you know? Well, that notion yeah. of surprise that you talk about is so, I, to me, I think that's such a great way of summing up that there are a lot of you know, well-meaning guys out there who don't realize the inherent sexism with sort of, oh, you're into football or, you know, the guys who are like, to me, right. they say, oh, I can't believe your wife's such a big Bears fan. And I'm like, I don't know. She was like a national champion athlete in college. So why would you be surprised right. she likes sports? Like she ran three marathons this decade. What have you done? And I think, right. I, I, so I don't know. I, I find that fascinating. I also wanted to ask you about what do you think about the the portrayals of women in in relation to jazz in media? The one that really sticks out to me that I always found a little weird was, um, you know, the uh, Claire Danes character in Homeland, where jazz is sort of mm. tied to her mental imbalance, and you know, and, and oh, I'm always like, weird. I'm, I'm always I've never like, seen Homeland. Okay, but so I didn't, I didn't realize that she's like, uh, I don't know if she's. Uh, like she's like sort of a paranoid schizophrenic or something. And so she's like this huge jazz fan and it's like, Oh, crazy lady loves jazz. And I remember laughing at it so much like that. Like why, why when the dude's writing this, this like imbalanced white woman in her thirties, they just, it has to be jazz that they're talking about. So I just didn't know from your perspective, if you find like what, what your sense of, of, of how jazz is sort of portrayed. I've always felt like in modern pop culture, it's a sign of like eccentricity or strangeness. Mm. And I, maybe that's, maybe that's. No, uh, I think that's definitely accurate. Yeah. Um, I mean, more, I think the issue 
I don't know when jazz is portrayed, like you're saying it, it's always kind of like this weird thing, like jazz, like jazz hands. Like, I don't know. Part <laughs> of it is just the word. It's just fun to say. Right. People are like, Oh, jazz. Like there's something titillating about it. But um, I think the bigger issue is just that it's not portrayed at all. <laughs> you right, know, that right. it's sort of functionally omitted from American culture, except as like a historical artifact, like we were talking about. Um, and that I think, I mean, it's fine, but it's just like, you know, eye roll when the only, when you have La La Land, like come out to all this success and then it's like, no, you know, like that's not accurate at all. And I mean, that's kind of how it's always been, but it's just a very strange thing. And it isn't, it's small, but it's not as small as people think. I mean, people, people like the music, you know, like it just, (laughs) it requires a little, a little tiny bit more digging than some other things but i mean i go to jazz shows and granted i'm in new york which is like a different kind of place than most places for that but it's like they're full and full of people all kinds of different people of all Mm -hmm. ages and all genders and some more diverse than others but it's like this isn't an anomaly like it's not like i go to these shows and i'm like alone you know which is what you would think if you were sort of looking at how jazz is covered and presented and whatnot in in the media yeah in pop culture and to, so to kind of wrap up, because you've been very generous with your time, um, where would you point the novice, uh, the, the, the folks who are like, I'm interested in jazz, but it's intimidating. I don't know where to start. I don't want to be the guy walking, you know, is cruising around on iTunes, like just trying to figure out which Miles Davis album is is the best one to buy. So where, where would you think are really good entry points for folks who might be wanting to dip a toe into these waters? For sure. Um, well, I mean, like you really can't go wrong, you know, <laughs> the first day, right. the first thing, I guess, like, it's just kind of like, there's no right or wrong answer. And I think that's kind of the thing that keeps a lot of people out of jazz, you know, like they're like, well, if I don't like this album, then I must not like jazz and I just must not be, you know, intellectually on that level or whatever. Like there's some kind of weird complex about it. It's like, no, it's like any other kind of music. Like you can just listen to an album and if you like it, you like it. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. And that's totally fine. But, um, I understand the desire to get acquainted, get acquainted with the classics. Um, and I mean, I wrote a piece that was kind of like my personal guide to Miles Davis or how I felt somebody could get into him it's on billboard so you know very easy to find there but the the fun thing i think about jazz is like if you go and you listen to that miles davis record and you know you start out and i don't know you're just into it and you find one that you really like or a song that you really like even and you go back to the liner notes or google them on wikipedia you know as a 2017 person does and see who's playing you know yeah. And then you're like, oh, like that person was on bass. That person was on tenor saxophone. And it's like, you know, that may not even be a thing. <clears throat> you know, that's not a thing most people who aren't kind of super nerdy think about. But it's a really easy way to like find similar music that you might like. You know, like yeah. if you if you're listening to um to Miles and, you know, you want to hear more Wynton Kelly, you know, who played piano with him, like. 
there are tons of Wynn Kelly records because, you know, <laughs> they were just recording in an era when, you know, people just went in for their session for a day and then left, you know, and it was just like, let's print more and more and more and more records because this is just the easiest way to make money and we have fairly low overhead. Um, so, so yeah, I think liner notes are a great resource. Um, but yeah, and Miles is a great place to start, but not the only place. You don't need to feel like if you listen to Kind of Blue and you think it's boring, like that that's the only option. Yeah. It's just more like I, there's definitely a certain amount of effort involved because it's just depending on how familiar you are with music from that era or not, it's not necessarily intuitive. But once you start learning a little bit and you listen to some album and you're like, oh, well, this is hard bop or this is modal or this is, you know, bebop or this is swing, you know, and these are all things that sound extremely different, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, totally different aesthetic. And so, you know, you can start to get a taste for what you're into or what you're not, you know, like I love kind of like Fats Waller, you know, like and that's pretty, he, he did pop songs basically, mm -hmm. but he's like a seminal jazz pianist. And, you know, if you go back and, maybe you want to come at jazz through learning the American songbook first and like yeah. getting to know all those classic tunes through, through kind of the singers of the forties and fifties. I like, there's just, there's no wrong way. You just have to like be willing to not like it and like know that that's okay. <laughs> and like that there's probably going to be something else that you do like, you know, cause there's just so much there. I had this friend and she was like, I hate the Beatles you know, in high school. And I was just like, I don't even understand how that's possible because there are so many different Beatles songs. Like they all sound like right. you can really get like something of whatever you want, you know? So saying you don't like jazz is like that stupid, you know, because it's just like, there are so many different things that qualify as jazz. There is no way that you category categorically dislike all of it. Unless yeah. you really listen to all of it and don't like it. <laughs> I mean, 100%. I mean, I, I always say when I talk about jazz, it's like people think, Oh geez, he's gonna dredge out like Jelly Roll Morton, uh, you know, cassettes, <laughs> and, and it's like, well, I, I don't know. We just had uh, Kelly Dwyer, the NBA writer, on the show last week, and he was talking about Steely Dan, and he he refers mm -hmm. to them multiple times as a as a jazz group. So I, mm -hmm. I I agree. I think that there's there's so many different forms the music takes. There's so many different influences that that inform. Uh, various groups that you wouldn't necessarily lump in there, but I think any jazz fan would understand the elements and and see the building blocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the flip side also is even if you don't want to dig in the trenches and like go back into the olden times, it's just as easy to look today to artists who you like um, and see where the jazz connections are there. I mean, if you, you know, if you like Kendrick Lamar <laughs> yeah. and you want to, you know, listen to Kamasi Washington, whatever, you know, I mean, that's another thing I've written about extensively if you would like to learn more. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are all of these kind of jazz tentacles to various pop music projects. And so if you hear something that sounds a little jazzy and something you like, you know, just look and see who did it and see what else they're doing. You know? Yeah. Well, I love the work you're doing on Bleacher Report. We will refer all of our listeners there and they should follow you on Twitter. I believe it's at uh, Natalie Weiner, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And the jazz detective is definitely uh, what should be on all the letters <laughs> that come your way from here to eternity. <laughs> Thank you.
And we are back in the sports world when athletes, coaches, and media do something interesting or noteworthy or, you know, that just they like to do. We destroy them by calling them uh, distractions from the team. That is nonsense. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So right now on the show, we celebrate what is distracting us this week. Adam, distract us. Well... This may put me under the category of turkey of the year, but last week, Brad, I mentioned to you that I had seen Shaquille O'Neal take the Pocky Chip Hot Chip Challenge, uh, and we really didn't have a way to talk about it other than his reaction was hilarious. Uh, I have to say, I now can speak firsthand to the perils of the hot chip challenge, having done it at work last week. Uh, one of my coworkers was given uh, this chip by a, a vendor who we work with and had it at her desk. And she said, well, I just need someone to do it now. And naturally, Brad, I raised my hand. And um, as people gathered around at four o'clock in the afternoon, I consumed this chip. And for about the first 10 to 15 seconds, I thought I would be okay. And then uh, I licked my lips and I swallowed the rest of the chip. And um, no joke, my hands were tingling. <laughs> I, I got a pain down my legs and my feet were tingling. I was sweating. Uh, I had tears pouring out of my eyes. Uh, I was able to hold out for three minutes before getting anything to drink. Um, and of course, there was nothing but uh, Gatorade and water around, which worked in the moment. And then someone found a carton of almond milk. I drank that. Uh, supposed to go to a, and then so kind of suffered through the rest of the day. Was supposed to go through to a uh, six o'clock workout and uh, at 530 as I was changing into my gym clothes, my stomach told me, you're not going anywhere. And uh, the rest of the night was a mess. So, Adam, I've seen you consume some of the hottest hot wings I can imagine or I could ever describe. Yeah. And you yes, were you really, did. really hurting. Had to go home early yeah. on, on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. When you say you were hurting throughout the day, like what does it actually feel like? I think a lot of people see people struggling and they think, oh, it's hot in the mouth. But like when that, that chip goes down, uh, what yeah. is the actual sensation with your insides? Um, well, it depends on which sensation you mean. So there's the acid reflux element of it, um, which was like a... Uh, even talking about it right now, I'm getting a little choked up, but um, it was like a severe pain in the chest. And then um, every time you, you burp or open your mouth, you can taste it. And uh, I felt it on my nostrils and on my face for uh, probably three hours afterwards, even after washing my face repeatedly. And then um, there's, a, you know, there's a little, part of the digestive process and uh when uh when i evacuated uh it was it was severe pain on on all ends let's just say it that way so when did the pain sort of disappear 
20, tw- uh, my stomach got back to normal 24 hours after I ate the chip. Oh my God. And it was one chip. One chip. So do they sell now, these I don't in think bags? the carton of almond milk that I downed uh, helped at all. Well, no, they, the chip comes in a, in one, it comes in one chip, one chip inside a, a package uh, or a, a, like a plastic bag, sealed plastic bag. And then that is put inside a packaging, the, the uh, shape of a coffin. Cause is the uh, Carolina Reaper yeah. chili, I believe it's called that goes on to this, which is uh, on the Scoville scale. Did I say that correctly? Um, whatever the scale of hotness is, it is at the very top and it was, Severe. I would like to say I shook it off like Charles Woodson did or uh, even Kristen Bell. I did not shake it off. It was terrible. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done. That's saying something. You, you mean Kristen Bell did this and just destroyed Kristen it? Bell. Kristen Bell destroyed it. She was fine. Charles oh. Woodson uh, also destroyed it and was fine. Uh, I No, it was ridiculous. It was bad. Hey, by the way, we need to get Charles Woodson on the show to talk about his wine. Oh yeah, oh I've I've tried. Hey Chuck, <laughs> let's do it, buddy. Chuck, you know Adam. Come on, yeah. What are yeah. you gonna do? All right. Well, no, Adam, no. I'm glad you're alive. Uh, I'm glad you are. Uh, you're no longer pooping blood. Thanks, man. And uh, Thanks. It means a lot. I'm gonna bring bring my thing to a more lighthearted place for my distraction. So my wife went downtown. You know my wife, my lovely wife, Kelly. Went downtown yeah, sure uh, do. with some uh, some of her friends and stayed overnight on Saturday. So I had the baby and my four year old daughter. So it was, it was Daddy Daughter's Day. Hit up a little Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast with uh, <laughs> with Charlie. She loved it. She loves a pink uh, a pink frosted sprinkles. You know, we ran some errands. Uh, we went and saw Santa at the uh, went and saw Santa at the ice cream shop. It was a pretty. Uh, it was a pretty uh, sweets-filled day to bribe the kids to be good. Awesome. Then we came home that night, my friend, and uh, the Grinch was on, like the original oh. cartoon Grinch. Sure. And we sat and we watched it, and my four-year-old daughter was just enthralled, thought it was so great. She was saying, like, Daddy, I'm going to go meet Cindy Lou Who at Disney World, and I'm like, sure, she's there every year. You can go whenever you want. <laughs> Uh, Adam, we actually negotiated with her. She thinks she gets to go when she's seven, which means in three years, she will not remember that she, you know, I promised her Cindy Lou who, um, but just what a delightful Christmas uh, special, you know, we, we've got a bunch here that we keep here, uh, you know, uh, Charlie Brown, which I think is great, but there's just something about the Grinch. It was my favorite one growing up. It was the one, actually it was, it was the Grinch and it was Mickey's Christmas Carol. Uh, that were the two that I really, really looked forward to as a kid growing up. And when I, when I really, when they would play those, you really knew it was Christmas time, you know, like you just knew. And here's the thing, like a song coming on the radio versus owning the CD and putting on the song. Yes, sir. It was just a little bit cooler to just catch it from the start on TV. Right. Like, it was really cool. And yes, I taped it. We watched it four more times that night to get her to just tire down and go to sleep. <laughs> and, I, and I let her sleep in bed with daddy huh. because she cried that mommy was gone and how much she missed her. I was like, you can sleep in my bed. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But I do think there's something. It made me. It just made me think about being a kid and maybe like six or seven days away from Christmas, and like you know, oh man, the Grinch is on tonight, or oh, this is the one night that like Mickey's Christmas Carol is on. It was. We did not live in an on-demand world in like 1987 or 1993. So it was cool, man. It was. It made me think about that. Maybe a little nostalgic, and yeah. then. Uh, and then I get I do what I do every night, which is give my 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 four year old the hot chip challenge until she passes out. <laughs> yeah, ah, well, it's a very nice moment. Um, interestingly enough, Kelly and I also watch Christmas specials downtown. Weird. Don't be talking about my wife, buddy. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh man, that's don't be, good. Don't be. I, you know what's funny? <laughs> you know what's funny, Adam? I knew something was weird when when she came home and she had been split in half. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man, that's an old. You know what that you is? Took that's it an to old, a whole another place. I'm gonna wow. leave that in there. I'm gonna leave that. In there. You know, that's an old. Um, that's an old SNL joke when they said uh, it's it's a David Spade, I think, when he goes. There are rumors that Shaquille O'Neal is dating. Uh, is dating uh, Cindy Crawford, and people got suspicious when Cindy Crawford was recently torn in half. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our distractions uh, and our turkeys of the year and our interview with Natalie Weiner, who was great, loved jazz. Uh, and uh, that is our pre-Thanksgiving show. And I'm sure that I'll finally get around to e- editing this the, 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 the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. But in the meantime, uh, I just want to give a shout out to Gareth and Joe. Give a shout out to all of our families. Uh, I want to give a shout out to, you know, our 100th episode coming up. If you've got an idea for a 100th episode guest, let me know. Barack Obama turned us down today. I'm not joking. Yeah, he sure did. Yeah, he really did. But Adam, you know what I said to you over email? Don't leave that bat on your shoulder, man. Take a swing. I just took I just took a big swing with Barack Obama and, and and I really missed. But I'm not going down like Carlos Beltran. Yeah, maybe show 100 can just be us talking about all of our rejections and what we would have talked to them about. It would be honestly, it would be like this. Like when I put the show up, the title would be something like Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, you know, <laughs> Serena Williams, Venus Williams. It'll look like crazy, and then it'll, you just keep reading, and at the end, it's like, all turned us down. Yeah, all said no. Here's why. <laughs> Actually, right. not only did they not turn us down, the request never even officially reached them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just ultimate, ultimate, uh, you know, PR douchebaggery, in effect. <laughs> all right, Adam, any shout-outs from your end? Insert normal shout-outs here. All right, now we're going to try. Adam's forgetting them, so we're going to try and do it. Okay, I want to give a shout-out to my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Lil Swanee. Meech. Ron Mack. And my other cousin, Ron. And in the immortal words of our nation's finest poet, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty.